Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dr. Nicola Pira, it's so great having you back again. I honestly consider you a good friend, even though I have never met you in person physically, but you and I have done stuff over the years now for, it's, it's, I mean, we were just chatting before we started, that you were, your, your first book was like in your mind. It hadn't even been written yet. Now here today, we're going to talk about your second one. Welcome back to Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. You're amazing and I can't wait to talk to you again today. Oh, it's it's been such an honor. And uh, Carolyn, thank you um, for seeing so much uh, value in my work from such an early point and being a supporter. And I cannot believe that now, yes, we are kind of like tenured in terms of our connection and our relationship. And okay. as we were joking about beforehand, I'm holding the vision of us actually crossing paths in human form and me being able to give you a hug and I know, doing I one so- of those then. Um, but yeah, thank you seriously for seeing uh, value in what I had to say from such an early piece. It, it is really everyone, I think, who, you know, you and community that has even given me the opportunity now to to be writing books. So I'm I'm very grateful. Oh, well, we, we're grateful for you and you've touched so many millions of lives. And I was just saying to you as well, before we started that when I read your book, whenever I read your stuff, but when I read this book, I felt like you were sitting in front of me and having a conversation with me. And you, you know, your style is just so connected. Your authenticity comes through and just, you're just a beautiful person and it just comes through. And that's very appealing to the world. You've really touched a, a, a core in the world of just making people feel, hey, it's okay. You know, and that's, and congratulations, because that's very, very special special. It's a real gift. I really, it's hearing that is so affirming of my own personal journey. Um, having, you know, come from a place where I, I watered down for, well, first and foremost, I should say, I didn't share my experience. Uh, and then I went through a lot of kind of censoring, watered, watering down, suppressing my real opinions, you know, aspects of my story for all, all different reasons. Um, so really evolving into someone who can and does now more frequently than not speak so authentically um, about my own journey, about my perspectives. And, you know, within the pages of this book, there's so much um, of my own early relational experiences, you know, more current relational experiences. So I'm continuing to remain committed to being in my own authentic self-expression. And it really feels affirming kind of hearing that it is translating. Oh, it is definitely translating and it's definitely touching and it's helping people and they can relate to it. So it's really great. So I love the style of the book. But before we dive in, I just want to tell everyone, if you don't know Nicole, she's amazing. You've got to follow her on Instagram. You've got to get her books. Dr. Nicole Lapeer is a holistic psychologist trained at Cornell University, uh, the New School for Social Research and the Philadelphia School for, of Psychoanalysis. She's the founder of the Global Community Healing Membership Self-Healer Circle. It's phenomenal. And uh, by the way, I'm part of your 
self-unit circle. And number one, New York Times bestseller of how to do the work, how to meet yourself and how to be the love you seek. Beautiful. And now we're going to talk today about your new book. I'm very, very, very thrilled you've written this book, Relationships. Get the, let me get the right title here that I don't say the wrong thing. How to be the love you seek. Beautiful. The simplicity in that title is captivating of the problem. I mean, there's so many problems in the world, but until we can be the love we seek, we're just going to carry on seeing this mess. And you approach this in such a mindful way, not a mindless way. And you bring your life story in, as you said, you're very vulnerable. You talk about all kinds of things that I hadn't, I mean, I've heard a lot of your life story, but there's things that I learned about your first marriage and about different relationships and more about your family. And that grounds us very nicely. And then I love how you've brought in the quizzes and the self-assessments and the exercises. You're just so good at that. But how to be the love you seek, Nicole, how did you even come up with that title? Tell us why you wrote the book. Dive in. The floor is yours. Absolutely. So for me, this kind of is a, a natural intuitive extension in my own personal healing journey. Um, I think as many of us become more aware of ourselves, you know, more insightful, more consciously present, um, as I talk a lot about in how to do the work, I think it's really natural then to begin to focus within our relationships. And when we do that, um, I think what we end up seeing for a lot of us, even kind of as indicated in the subtitle, we see a lot of dysfunctional cycles and habits and patterns that we, many of us even see yeah. in our parents and in the generations that came before us. And it's really hopeful um, as I begin to see conversations about what a lot of us are calling cycle breaking, right? First identifying mm. that there is kind of intergenerationality of these cycles passed on to us from our ancestors. And then obviously equally a, a focus on creating change. And a lot of even the curiosity and question and say, well, why is this the case? Why are so many of us carrying uh, these habits and patterns, especially for those of us that know that they didn't serve us in childhood, yet we continue to repeat them, um, even for some of us, despite efforts at changing them. Seeing this in my own individual relationships, as I talk a lot about, and seeing them when I was working much more traditionally, uh, doing a lot of couples and family, I was loved observing and, you know, exploring dynamics between individuals. Mm. And so when I would have the couples that would come into my room, the, happy, the the families that would come into my room, I continued to see no matter how many, you know, beautifully insightful conversations, mutual points of understanding in those sessions that I would have with couples or was able to facilitate mm -hmm. with couples, more often than not, much like I was seeing it in my individual work, they would come back in week after week and report the same patterns, the same mm. inability to change those habits. Um, so like I said, so much of my work is informed by my own personal struggles, my own professional struggles. So after writing the book on, you know, individual awareness and then the workbook on really how to dive into understanding ourselves and all the different selves in these deeper levels, it was the next intuitive step of let mm. me really begin to explore why we're so stuck um, intergenerationally in these patterns. And of course, beginning to, for a lot of us, unlearn definitions of love, of relationship, of connection, even of self-identity that were created yeah. in many of our early experiences, you know, insecure and unsafe childhoods. And really, as the, the title indicates, relearning um, a new definition of a secure, grounded love that can allow us to have more authentic relationships. I, I really like that. And as I was reading through, it made me kind of 
you know, you look at your own relationships because that's kind of what your book, your your work tends to stimulate. And you look at your own things and you and you see this paradox, like we know, oh gosh, I did do that and I did do that, but I didn't see. And you kind of like know the link between the two, but you didn't really put it together. So it's one thing knowing and it's another thing living into it. And I appreciate what you've done in the book in terms of and what you do with all your work is that, yes, we can get the knowledge, but that chasm between the knowledge and the application is 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 always the big question and it starts with seeing it so you 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 build a nice bridge across that chasm to help people which is really cool and so you I like that I love the fact that you started with your own story and I like the way you've told lots of stories throughout so do you mind just sharing that because people always relate it's always nice to hear and how you saw lots of things and how it played out and that's informed your work with people and so on as you always say absolutely um and you know in terms too of insight right? Kind of knowing our own story, the own cycles that we're repeating or on which we're stuck. And then the second step of creating change is breaking those habits, right? Doing yeah, things yeah. differently. I want to talk about that, that chasm just really quickly and Great. acknowledge how for many of us, that's deep. <laughs> it's hard, right? And I think your work so beautifully speaks to this in terms of Right, the neurobiology, the neural wiring, and what really we need to do differently that changes while we're wired to create incredible amounts of change throughout our life, it's quite difficult. So for any listeners, mm-hmm. just kind of beginning there to relieve maybe some of the shame, especially those of us that do see ourselves habitually repeating the same patterns in our relationships that we know don't serve us or our loved yeah. ones, uh, maybe some of us even hurting, you know, through what we're saying and our doing or what we're saying and what we're doing, those around us Right, really understanding that while we can change, um, it is incredibly difficult to embody those new choices because we do have to work with our body and learn how to tolerate um, different degrees of stress. And for many of us, even as adults, learning new relationships with our emotional worlds and how to navigate them and how to remain responsive instead of reactive in those very survival-driven nervous system states. So for anyone out there who's like, oh, I'm still stuck in hole in that chasm, I want to hopefully relieve Uh, Some of maybe that shameful, critical voice that you might be experiencing. And this really maps onto my own journey. Before I even became aware um, of the role that I was playing, I think I was like probably many of you listening. I found myself, I entered my first relationship when I was 16 years old. I think I was what many of us kind of refer to as a serial monogamous, which meant outside of a couple months between relationships, I was always happening into another relationship. And throughout relationship after relationship, well into my 30s, I ended up feeling somewhere into the relationship, the language that I would use often in complaint to the partner I was with at the time was, I don't feel emotionally connected. I don't have the kind of depth, the feeling, the intensity, the thing I'm looking for that I imagine means I found the right person. So before long, inevitably, the relationship would end for whatever reason and onwards I would go to find the more perfect person that would meet that need. Always assuming it was I picked the wrong person or there's something that they're lacking in terms of their ability to emotionally connect with me in the way that I felt I needed. And it took me well into my 30s um, when I was training at the Psychoanalytic Institute in Philadelphia, where I really began to begin to explore my role in why I was possibly feeling so emotionally disconnected from those around me, not just pointing the finger that I was picking the wrong person or it was something they were doing or not doing, but saying, why is this such a pattern in my life? Mm -hmm. And the awareness that I was gifted with begrudgingly at first at that time was that the reason that I was so emotionally disconnected and perhaps those listening that are like, yeah, I feel 
I feel lonely even though I'm in a relationship or I don't feel connected or I don't have that sense of love and support that I imagine I'm supposed to get. I don't feel accepted, you know, whatever it is, whatever the language is. The reason for me was because I was emotionally disconnected from myself. Mm. Beginning in early childhood when my mom wasn't able to create that safe and secure emotional connection with me or to attune to me and my emotional needs specifically, my physical needs were met. And this is why for many years, it was very confusing to me. I thought I had a happy, healthy, connected childhood because I wasn't aware of how impactful not having and how much we need as children, our nervous system in particular, physiologically mm-hmm. needs that safe and secure emotional attunement, that nervous system to connect with and help us downregulate when we're stressed out or when we're upset. Mm-hmm. So in protection, as all of us will do in childhood, we'll adapt And our nervous systems will begin to protect us from the near constant stress that is caused when you don't have that emotionally immature, attuned parent, which for me, it wasn't that my mom was ill-intented or, you know, not well-meaning. She wasn't even aware of how disconnected she was because Mm -hmm. in her own childhood, her needs weren't consistently met. For my mom, her physical needs often weren't met and her emotional needs were completely left out of her family discussion. So Mm -hmm. she, just like I ultimately ended up doing, which is we disconnected. We disconnected Mm -hmm. from my physical body, which is where my emotions as those physiological kind of neuropeptide, neurotransmitter markers, neurochemicals, right? That make me feel something. I was emotionally and physically disconnected. So when I was relating to those around me, I was away on my spaceship, like I like to describe it. Or if I was aware that, not not aware I was having an emotion on that spaceship, or if I was aware I was having an emotion, I felt too vulnerable or too much like a burden, too unsure that this person would be available to me to hear and support my emotion, just like my mom was unavailable to Mm -hmm. even share it. Now that's not to say, right? I had this beautiful insight and awareness into my thirties. Oh my gosh, I need to reconnect with my physical body. I need to learn how to soothe my emotions. I need to learn how to open myself up for these beautiful co-regulatory moments. And then crossing that chasm was a whole nother and continues to be journey for me so much as learning physiologically how to do all of those things. As someone who prioritizes my mental health and physical well-being, I'm always looking for products that help me look and feel my best each day, which can be a challenge. This is why I love Purity Woods. Their mission is to provide people with the cleanest and most effective health, aging, and longevity products available. All of their products are USDA certified organic, non-GMO, free of anything artificial, free of toxic preservatives and synthetic additives like pesticides, chemical fertilizers and dyes, parabens, and of course, it's cruelty-free and never tested on animals. Purity Woods products leverage the wonders of a revolutionary ingredient, maple leaf extract. Maple leaves contain anti-inflammatory antioxidants and hydrating properties, which can help soothe irritated or inflamed skin while also plumping, brightening and nourishing it. Their age-defying dream cream is a game changer. It will make you look and feel like you've jumped back years in time. Its powerful formula contains revolutionary maple leaf extracts plus over 25 unique and potent ingredients that help eliminate fine lines, wrinkles, age spots and uneven skin tone. 
Turn back time on the appearance of your skin with Purity Woods Age Defying Dream Cream. Purity Woods is currently offering 17% off site-wide, but we have an additional 10% discount for our listeners for a total savings of 27%. Go to puritywoods.com forward slash Dr. Leaf or enter the code Dr. Leaf at checkout for an additional 10% off your first order. That's P-U-R-I-T-Y-W-O-O-D-S dot com and enter the code Dr. Leaf for a total of 27% off your order. The link and details will be in the show notes. It's a lot, you know, just hearing what you're saying. And I just published a paper with my team on, we've been looking at the, crossing the chasm, we've been looking at the time it takes and the whole, the whole, um, to, to create that change that's going to create the psychoneurobiological change. So the change in our body, the change in our brain and the networks in our mind. And it's, it's, uh, at least 63 days and that's at nine weeks. And it's generally multiple and it's the rest of your life. But if we, if we realize that, that each time you move forward through something, there's these patterns that occur. And this is what was so interesting with the, how to, you know, I was reading your book, I was thinking so much about this, this paper that we just published with all the, the link to how we go through these stages of up and down and how it takes time and it gets worse before it gets better. And then you get this insight and then the insight freaks you out and then you kind of feel okay again. And then there's, and but if people aren't told about that, and I think that's really key to your work is, and why why I do what I do is to help people to understand that yes, we all know it takes time, we all know those things, but what does that look like? And you know, over over a period of time, which I think is, you know, what does it look like to cover that chasm and and to get through or to build that bridge or that kind of thing? And that's that's what the hard work is, and to know what to look for. That's what you give such good explicit advice is, you know, look for these things. And in all the different chapters where you've got the different conditions, uh, the different conditions and the different, all the different elements that you cover. I don't want to give your book away. You can give it away as you're going along, but that's great because it's giving people like little road markers along the way of what you can look for and what that means and not to feel bad about yourself. And just to quickly, be, and I'm going to keep quiet after this, I wanted to, because you stimulated another interview I did the other day about someone who interviewed the son of Sam, who was that serial killer. I don't know if you remember back in the 70s, the shooter and that kind of thing. And he's still in prison 46 years later. And it was very interesting. He spent a hundred hours interviewing him and he's written a book about that. And I interviewed him about that. But what was interesting there was you spoke about, you speak, you speak a lot about detachment, um, the attachment archetypes and all that, you know, that you're working. And that's a big part of what you, how you help people understand. And that primal bond, that was one of the key things because son of Sam, who if those of you don't know, back in the seventies shot a lot of people and it was very, it was just really ugly. And it was one of the first of that kind. It was an anomaly at that time. Now it's common every week kind of to have shooters, but the primal bond was broken and his biological mom couldn't keep him because of her circumstances and gave him up. And the adoptive parents were wonderful, loving, met all the needs, but never told him that his biological mom was still alive, told him that he had died. So there was a sense of the identity issue. You've got a whole chapter where you talk about the identity thing um, and the self-love. And as I was reading this book, I kept thinking about this example, not justifying the action. Obviously, not everyone who's had a broken primal bond or is adopted is going to land up being a serial killer. It's a very, very small percentage. But it just goes to the impact of understanding, not you're not blaming, like you're not blaming your mom. She came from that environment. We we need to honor what our parents went through, but we also need to honor the impact that it's had on our lives and to understand the importance of that. So I just wanted to, you know, sort of underscore what you're saying with those two pieces of information 
I think detachment, when we come to the awareness, if you're kind of resonating with what I was sharing earlier, right? I'm mm. alone in a crowded room. I'm looking for this emotional, you know, kind of feeling and I'm, and I'm not getting it. I think as we become aware, you know, as I talk about change, we become aware so we can make new choices. We can reattach to ourselves for me emotionally, reconnect with my physical body, reconnect with my emotions so that then I could be authentically connected to those around me. Right. I think logically, right. So I can make those new choices being the second step. I think we intuitively, logically, even hopefully think, oh, okay. Once I became aware that I'm detached, right. For whatever yeah. reason, many of us, because our caregiver wasn't physically present, other us, others of us like myself, cause they weren't emotionally present. Right. I detached out of protection now mm -hmm. logically. Okay. Well, I have this insight and awareness. So I do think some of us have the belief that things will only get easier or better. I'll only start to feel better, more attached, you know, more connected in my relationships on the up and up. And I think the cliche that many of us love to hate, you know, any version of healing isn't linear. Like you're saying, there's ups, there's downs, it gets hard. There's a mess as you talk about, right? That's the reality of it because we yeah. detached out of protection Mm -hmm. from upsetting, stressful, overwhelming emotions mm -hmm. that we don't have the physiological resources yet to tolerate. Mm -hmm. So not only as we become more conscious of ourselves in each moment, seeing the habits and patterns that are coloring the day, becoming more connect consciously connected to our physical body, more connected to those physiological sensations of stress, upset, overwhelm, it becomes increasingly harder and until we, and I talk about this often in, in self-healer circle, my membership, until we have new resources or embodied choices for what to do in those moments where I'm feeling increasingly stressed, I'm feeling increasingly upset, I'm feeling increasingly overwhelmed, we will continue to rely on those old habits and patterns, which is why, like you're saying, we go back. Right? Yeah, we go back in, in action, in reaction, I should say, really, right? And we yeah. don't just continue to move forward, feeling better and doing better for, for lack of a better word. So when we become conscious, not only are we consciously attend, attending to very uncomfortable sensations mm -hmm. for many of us, and I hope this release relieves shame, especially those of us kind of upwards yeah. in biological years, we don't yet have the physiological resources to deal with mm -hmm. those upsetting emotions. So it's really, again, that twofold practice becoming aware for the many of us that we are detached um, from our physical and emotional body and then remaining committed in those small ways, like your beautiful research mm -hmm. is, you know, kind of offering us for upwards of 60 plus days to learn how to tolerate slightly more and more stress and upsetting emotions so that mm -hmm. we can remain present and we don't have to continue to habitually detach because that's the only thing our nervous system will do in that moment each and every time it's overwhelmed. So good. So it's learning to sit with it and understanding the process of sitting with it and being able to be comfortable. I feel terrible, but it's okay. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to move forward. Otherwise, it, it all that mess just pours out into the relationships. What's really important, I, I just want to emphasize here too, is if there was a time and a space in early childhood where we didn't have that secure connection, we didn't have someone to sit with us in that overwhelming mm -hmm. feeling there's a deep rooted belief. I think that I know many of us have, I've heard kind of acknowledgement of a fear. I can't sit in this. I'll be consumed by it. This mm -hmm. feeling will never, right? This might go be away. language you hear going through it. Never go away. I am totally alone in this. And again, a lot of those beliefs that men, there's many others, but just of the few I just mentioned are grounded in 
not to shame ourselves, our very real lived experience of it being completely consuming and overwhelming of us actually being alone in it, of maybe it not having gone away because many of us are feeling the same sadness and grief that we felt in our childhood. For me, I'm feeling the same emotional loneliness even to this day in moments, right? Anxiety, I know is another prevalent one when our nervous system is hypervigilant. There was a time in my twenties where I imagine I'd feel anxious forever. Right. Mm. So I want to, again, normalize where those beliefs come from. They come from our very real, really lived experience of being alone and overwhelming emotions where perhaps for some of us, they still haven't gone away. Mm, that's so good. You, you say, um, and I don't know which page it's on, but I remember reading it. Um, you talk about how a child, and uh, it's just really related, it's resonating, especially because of the, the book you interviewed me about this recently, but this is why I wrote this book. Let's give our kids the skills to have the mental skills to be able to deal with these things but you make a comment about how a a child i'm just paraphrasing i can't remember the exact wording or the exact page but how if if we don't if if we don't explain i think it was your own experience if something's not explained to you our immediate assumption as a child is well i did something bad i'm bad mom said i'm bad dad's unhappy or angry i did something wrong and that if that's not ever discussed that then is linked in your mind with that whatever the context was and that then is there. It's a driver. It's in your mind, brain, body network. It's in every cell of your 37 to 100 trillion cells. And it's driving you. And until you unpack that and reconceptualize it, it's going to keep driving that relationship. The most impactful thing is when that belief, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, I need to be less or more of whatever mm. it is, right? What's I think more problematic and pervasive is when that gets blown out of even the context of childhood and it gets attached to our identity and then translates into what I call, right, these conditioned selves or these habitual ways of being. And if, you know, in that early stages of development, when our brain is emotionally immature and is is egocentric, will, as all, all of our brains will do, try to make meaning of and understand the events around us Mm-hmm. Without the maturity to zoom out that we gain, you know, perspective in childhood to know all of the different reasons why yeah. a parent might be physically present or present in a particular, maybe abusive way, maybe physically absent, maybe emotionally absent, maybe emotionally overwhelming or reactive, right? Where the whole world is stressed and you feel like you're on eggshells for the next emotional re- eruption in those early developmental years, right? That context gets attached to person, right? Identity. Because what the the meaning will assign is I'm the cause. There's something inherently yeah. when mom or dad isn't showing up for my physical or emotional needs or when they're yeah. overstepping my boundaries or abusing me or neglecting me, right? I will land on the meaning or the cause being me. I need to be a different way. I need to show less of this. I need to walk around on eggshells. I need to tend to their needs to try and avoid their emotional reaction before it happens. And then because at our core, what we're essentially telling ourselves is I'm unworthy of having my needs met. I'm not lovable unless I'm being this certain way, right? I don't, I'm not worthy of having a safe and secure connection where I could just be myself or even having maybe an adult present at all, or one who doesn't abuse me in whatever way, right? Then that becomes an aspect of our ego or our core identity where we continue to march along life, losing that ability to to zoom out. And at our core, we feel unworthy in the same way that we did. And we continue to modify ourselves in the same way that we once did. And Mm. again, like all of this is wired, as you beautifully teach, into us, kind of our neurobiology, our physiology, 
And many of us even repeat it in terms of, and maybe even take mind. pride in it in terms of our identity, right? Now I'm a caretaker because that's how I think I'm selfless and I'm serving other people where I'm putting myself last and neglecting myself for everyone else. And, you know, that I think some of our identities get celebrated. For me, it was achievement, right? Living in a society that very much values degrees and certain levels of achievement, right? That identity that was born in that childhood where my mom wasn't able to be emotionally present to me outside of moments of achievement became who I knew myself to be, which is why I felt so empty and unfulfilled mm -hmm. as I checked the final box of achievement somewhere in my 30s had a relationship, had a private practice, had the letters after my name. And I felt really shameful at the same time because I didn't feel connected or fulfilled by the life that I'd worked so hard to create. And again, all of that was this conditioning that gave me a sense or so I thought was going to give me a sense of worthiness once I just did this one last thing. And how many of us listening even tell ourselves like, yeah, I can one be happy thing. when, right? Mm -hmm. If I just do this, if my life and when my life looks like this, I'll be able to feel. And a lot of that's just a function of this idea that was created in childhood out of necessity, out of adaptation, where the, the probability was that you did have to modify yourself in some way and that you're possibly not living in your full self-expression or you would feel more connected, more grounded and more connected. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mm. So good. You, you know, if I may, with your story, you, you, your mom was very ill and you, your dad was the only breadwinner. And so there was a lot of restriction and control and food control and all kinds of things. And your, so there was so much crisis in health that that's where you didn't, you, you didn't, your own needs were, if you, like your best friend who got beaten up and you weren't able to share that and you lay in bed crying. And so those, that all kind of built up to this whole thing of you seeking after helping others like the profession you went into is always okay i'll put me back i'm just there my role in life is simply to serve others now it is it's good to serve others we as humans it's not about us it's about us in the world but you can't do that from a place of if you have the void you had like a huge void in your life and that deep spiritual part of you was 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 not connected and so as you say you got all the letters you got everything you achieving and and externally it seems like you know What's going on? And 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 Nicole, this is just so many people. It's not. It's it, this is more common than it is uncommon. It's just this external validation, and that kind, it's not always just. I'm not blaming every mother and every parent because you can grow up in a perfect home and something. Someone says one statement to you. I mean, I've had some of my patients who really they they got all the emotional support, but they had a statement made that just threw them off, and it ducked through them off for the rest of their life because the the weight, the weight of that impact of that statement that shifted. And if we don't teach ourselves to 
stand back and observe and look and see and I feel like I'm telling what, you a story that you should be no, telling. I, no, I really appreciate it. I think what many of us are are calling, I think what you said was was kind of beautifully wise in terms of these ideas of service, um, selflessness. I think it's wrapped up in that. I think what many of us have been conditioned to believe, put it this way, that is service or that is being selfish is actually an act of our survival. Sometimes our physical survival. Yeah. More often than not, our emotional survival. And I have come to learn um, one of the aspects of, you know, not having that emotional connection in my childhood. So being very externally achievement driven, mm-hmm. um, not having um, that emotional, right, connection to just essentially be who I was yeah. um, in other people was mm-hmm. kind of coupled hand in hand with this idea of because I didn't have space for my emotional needs, I felt very insecure and vulnerable sharing emotional needs. Yet, Right. I would have this idea that doing that would be a burden. And I almost prided myself on whether it was in my within my family. Um, I became known as nothing bothers me, Nicole, in my home. Right. Seemingly like you shared, um, having witnessed my friend get violently jumped one night, not bringing right that state of need to my my core immediate family. And then I repeat it in a lot of ways, thinking I was doing what's best for them by not upsetting or worrying. I don't want to worry my mom. I don't want to have them worry about me. I brought that same pattern thinking I was being compassionate, being in service of others, Mm -hmm. right? If I don't have needs, if I just defer, whether it's anything from what we're going to do to spend our time, what you want to eat for dinner. Oh no, what do you want to eat for dinner, right? Not making my own kind of say and kind of what my body might physically need emotionally, never really bringing those to the table unless I was complaining that I was emotionally connected, right? Like I was sharing earlier, yeah. thinking all of the while that I was being a, a good daughter, a good mm-hmm. sister, a good partner, a good friend, that I was living in service. And until I understood the role of our nervous system and how foundational our physical needs are, our emotional needs, giving space for our emotional self-expression and gaining the support that we need in those moments, what I came to realize is this identity that I was priding myself on, right? Being in care of and service, the non-burden participant in all of my relationships who just worried about achieving and making everyone happy was actually a function of my survival mode, right? Mm-hmm. It was what I felt I had to do, not disappoint you or else you'll leave me, right? Because one of the aspects of my mom unable to tolerate her own emotions when she was upset with what I was doing, with how I was expressing myself, you know, in childhood with what I was saying, she would shut down emotionally and mm. give me what I'm sure many of us might have lived, the silent treatment. Oh gosh, yeah. Right. So for me, this kind of perception management, well, then I won't I won't say things that might upset you mm. because what that has done in childhood is created a disconnection in the most important relationship I need. So now in my adulthood, just like I was sharing at the beginning, in my professional life, in my personal life, I won't say things that might upset people, that might disappoint people, that mm. might be not what they want or need from me in this moment. I will not express my needs, especially in moments where they go against, whether it's what to eat for dinner or whether or not I want to be active one day or not active and the other person wants differently, right? Because it could upset or disappoint. And all of the while, I think I'm putting you first in service. Really, I'm just surviving in the only way that I knew how. And on a a very surface, I'm managing what you think of me because I'm not telling you or sharing with you the truth of how I feel, what I'm thinking, what I'm wanting, what I'm needing, what I desire, right? In any given moment. Mm -hmm. So again, I think a lot of us have this conditioning 
We think we're a good person. We think we're selfless. And we think that that means to remove ourselves or to neglect ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's taken me a while to realize that until we're foundationally present to our physical bodies, until we learn how to regulate our nervous system and explore how we're feeling, what we think, what we want, and then share that with the world around us, we can't be in true service to another person. Mm-mm. The irony of 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 feeling that need to serve others, which we do need, but when we empty, is that you actually, the, the, your empathy increases. The research shows us the empathy increases and your ability to help others increases when you've filled yourself up. It's really that oxygen mask principle. It yes. really is a valid thing. But the world kind of says, oh, no, no, no. Always put the oxygen mask on other people. But you can't, if you're dead, you can't do anything. Because right. that kind of situation where you've got that void, you're slowly dying. I mean, you explain that, you know, you may be alive, but are you, you know, that peace, that sense of life, that ability to enjoy the ups and downs and bounce back and that kind of thing. You know, you spoke about in your first marriage, how you, that took a lot of courage to say that you needed a divorce and you thought you were okay. And your partner obviously was getting every need met, but you certainly weren't. And, you know, it was, it was the courage that you had to see that this is not right because you actually are in this almost like if I'm reading you correctly and if I read the book correctly and in it kind of like for the wrong, almost the wrong thing, you're doing what you've always done. You just repeated that pattern. So it was kind of an epiphany for you from what what I can see. I think the most damaging, relationship damaging byproduct of removing ourselves or suppressing our wants and needs or our self-expression in a relationship Mm -hmm. is the resentment, the anger. That's Mm -hmm. anger, right? Is the kind of biological marker, physiological marker that, you know, messenger that tells us when our needs are going unmet or when our boundaries are being crossed yeah. or, or being violated, right? So yes. after years of this, and I think many of us begin to feel very resentful very. of our loved ones, our family members, our partners, our romantic partners, our professional relationships, mm-hmm. right? And we get, we could either get explosively angry at them, you know, erupting at any kind of small, you know, happening because we mm-hmm. can't control all of that pent up anger and frustration at not having had our needs met. Some of us go down a more kind of passive route or passive aggressive route about it. So that, you know, can absolutely be the ending of a relationship is when we are carrying so much anger and resentment and we think on some very surface level that it's what the person's doing or not doing, right? That they're causing or their action or inaction is causing my anger not to be able to. And that's very much what I was becoming very present to in that previous marriage was not only the resentment I had accumulated across all of my relationships, beginning in my family over decades of my life, I became more present to the unconscious patterns in terms of why I was picking certain relationships, why I was staying in certain relationships and how I was showing up, which was continuing to keep my needs so below the surface and so not a priority that I continued to just build and increase my own anger and resentment. And the hard look in the face that I had to have with myself was that for me, the reality, I think for a lot, I wasn't angry as I thought I was at the person, at the world around me. I was angry with myself for not showing up in service of myself, for neglecting myself. Some of us for sabotaging ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? Others for betraying ourselves. And a lot of times I think when we're angry, it's, it's the natural tendency is to say, oh, well, I'm angry at the world or you. And I think the reality 
is we're angry at ourselves because we haven't showed up in support of our needs. We haven't defined boundaries in situations where we need to define boundaries. And when we stop projecting that anger outward, of course, when we become present to it, and then when we learn a new relationship where we can view it, like you were kind of sharing earlier, right? Mm-hmm. As we can separate ourselves, say, oh, okay, this is giving me a message right now. Mm-hmm. And the message is an opportunity to say, okay, I need to put up that boundary. I'm not safe in this situation. I need to start to meet my needs a bit better. And I can take that responsibility and begin to do that for myself. And it's just, it's vital to, it's vital to survival. I mean, that's how cool this is. And it's not being selfish. It's actually being unselfish because you eventually, as you say, that because it's going so contrary to our wired for love nature, that your, you know, your whole title, and it's scientifically, we talk about it as being wired for love because it's so contrary to that. It creates that that anger, as you say, towards yourself, towards others. So it ends up boomeranging. So the caretaker turns into the angry person and it's it creates all kinds of other resentments and whatever and whatever. And, you know, you talk so much about the body response and it, it, I'm sure you're aware of this, but every single cell of our body, 37 to 100 trillion cells of our body, every memory that we have, that we experience with our mind that goes into the mind. So our mind experiences, we build it into one, one part of the mind and into the brain and into 37 to 100 trillion cells as these little protein carpets. And if it's destruct, if it's destructive and we don't deal with it, it's bigger and bigger. We've got all these broken, the carpets unroll, literally creating all that vulnerability in our body. And eventually that becomes that those, that body, the body signals, that's our body screaming, please pay attention because that memory is inside of this physical thing. You know, you explain that beautifully in the book and, and you give a lot of tools on how to read that, how to read those signals, which are the so most, great. The most empowering um, awareness and then embodiment practice that we can have is to begin to reconnect with our body so that we can attune to the messages that it's constantly sending, right? To our mind. All the time. And then let's expand this to our others, our loved ones, yeah. to yeah. our relationship. And to our communities in the world around us, because we are a, like a signal, like we're an energetic being. And just like that um, resentment example, kind of we were describing, right? All of this anger and stress in my body, like you're beautifully describing, in myself, mm-hmm. are sending out an electromagnetic message mm-hmm. in this through the state of my nervous system, right? Mm-hmm. A stressed nervous system is a bit like dominoes. Mm-hmm. When I now interact with those around me, without even saying anything, their bodies are going to register. And I think a very common example is I'm sure many of you probably maybe walked into a room after a stressful event happened, after a fight happened, and the two individuals might not even be saying anything to each other anymore, but you can feel that something went down that wasn't positive in in that room, right? And it's not magic what you're feeling. No, it's real. Are the nervous systems communicating, right? The stress and the tension that someone's carrying in their body. So when we're walking around, again, even more of a PSA in terms of why it's important to make sure we're caring for ourselves and our needs. When we're walking around resentful and angry with unmet needs and or boundaries that are being violated, we're sending signals of stress. So even if we want to show up as a calm, grounded presence for our loved ones, for our children, right? Just within community, in service to others, Mm -hmm. The message we're going or our body, the powerful message our body is going to be sending is that we're not safe. We're a threat, 
right? And then their nervous system is going to ping. And this is why kind of back to the beginning and the concept that led into this book, this is why we're so stuck in relationships because what's happening for many of us is we have two dysregulated nervous systems feeling threatened, feeling stressed, oftentimes based in past experiences and their similarity, you know, because we're carrying all that energy in our body, communicating with our mind, applying the same meanings. I'm not worthy. I'm not being cared for. I'm not being considered unless I, right. And now in our stressed out, dysregulated state, I'm trying to have a grounded, calm, responsive, insightful, right. Build that bridge over the chasm conversation with someone else. But my nervous system is sending a signal that it's not safe here. You're not safe to express yourself. I'm Mm -hmm. not someone that's safe to connect with. And then their nervous system is going to go down that same habitual neurobiological pathway that their nervous system does when they are threatened or unsafe, Mm -hmm. which can even for a lot of us be right. If I'm with someone that has an, if I'm someone who has an abandonment wound, physical or emotional, and if I'm with someone who the way they've learned to create safety in childhood was to distract themselves or to distance themselves from their emotions, leave the room, change the subject, right? Go far away on the spaceship that I used to live on where they're physically there, but you could feel their blank look in their eyes. They're not emotionally there. Now, when they're doing that unconsciously to create safety, because what I'm saying or doing or sharing is overwhelming their nervous system. Now, my abandonment wound is going to be activated because they're changing the subject. They're scrolling on their phone. They're not actually listening to what I'm saying. Are you there? Are you present? Mm -hmm. Right. So now I'm going to feel abandoned in this moment of upset. And now what they're doing to create safety for themselves, that habitual way at least, is going to continue to fire up my reaction. And then for a lot of us, we spin in this cycle. And that's what I would see in the clients that inspired this whole work and land of thinking. And, you know, we're going to continue to cycle in those ways with the same partner on able to find new solutions or to, you know, kind of downregulate in these moments. And we're just going to pass on these, these cycles or these patterns throughout generations. Oh, absolutely. And it passes through the sperm and the ovates. It's epigenetics. It actually physically happens. You know, that whole energy thing with feeding it in the room and that kind of thing. We literally are our messy mind is our biofield and that embodies our brain and our body and a messy mind, messy brain, messy body. That's what people are picking up. So those toxic thoughts or those experiences, they're wired. They're in those little protein carpets in our soul. They're in this messy mind. But we can step into a wise mind, which is what you guide us through in this in your book, is stepping out into the wise mind and analyzing this mess and deconstructing it. And I'd love us to chat a little bit about just like you talk about maybe some of the techniques. Maybe, maybe, I don't know which chapter did you want to maybe start with the which admit Nicole, this is up to you, but maybe the um the conditioned selves. And that, because you mentioned that earlier on, and you've got like maybe to walk us through a little exercise or something like that. Absolutely. So people can I, see I, like, what can we start doing about it? Because what what can people start doing about this? Yes, I relate to everything that Nicole's yeah. saying and it makes sense. And now what's what's one of my first steps? Obviously they must get the book, but what is something that they can start doing? I really want everyone to, to understand too um, how wired in right? These selves, these habits, these habitual ways of finding safety, whatever they might be that you might become aware of, hopefully as a result of this conversation, how wired in they are. And one of the big moments for me was to understand that the, our earliest environment, right? Because just you saying cells kind of brought up this, this thought for mm-hmm. me, um, is in utero. When we are in someone else's physical 
the person. Primal bonding. Mm. Right. And so considering, you know, at, at the time of even pre-birth, you know, when we were developing in someone else, what was going on in, in their life, right? What was even their relationship mm. to finding out that they were pregnant with us? Um, because, you know, some of us might have been, as I was, unexpected pregnancies. Some of us might have been unwanted pregnancies. Some of us might have been very joyfully, you know, waited for yeah. pregnancies beyond kind of what was our parents' relationship with, you know, the information and news that that we were developing inside of them. What was in the context of their life like? How much stress were they under? What were they doing? Were they supported? Right? And then we could really get a sense in terms of the epigenetic and wired in impact. Because one of the, the things I came to realize is that being um, a later in life pregnancy, my mom was 42, my sister was 15 years older than me, my, my brother was 18, I was not planned. Wow. Having a lot of health anxiety, like you mentioned um, earlier in my family, where there, my mom had a lot of chronic health issues, chronic pain issues. My sister had some pretty severe illnesses in her early childhood. Now in the mm. 80s, when I was you know, born, um, there was a lot of belief that older maternal age would lead to developmental issues. So when my mom first started having symptoms, morning sickness symptoms, she disclosed to an aunt who was a good friend at the time, um, a, a a concern that she had had stomach cancer, that that was what was the cause wow. of her symptoms. And it took her several weeks to finally go to the doctor upon this aunt urging her to do so. And then she came to find out she was pregnant. So I think about the amount of cortisol, mm. right? That was coming into my developing wow. body, thinking that I was stomach cancer and then finding out that, no, no, I was a baby and then I was going to be wow. welcomed. And, you know, she was going to have me. Um, and though a lot of stress about how I would write would I be physically developmentally, you know, kind of within milestones because of her age? So mm-hmm. just want to share that, that worry. To, That's yeah. To even expand, right. What some of us might be thinking about in terms of where some of our, our coping or our habitual patterns, this neurobiology might've come from and welcoming us to include, right. Those early environments. If you do know kind of what the context was of your birth, your pre-birth, um, what was going on in, you know, kind of the contextual experience um, around. So just something to think about. Can, and then can I thank you for sharing that? Because I had the same, I was the same sort of experience. My mom wasn't sickly, but she didn't want another child. And so I was an unexpected pregnancy and she cried for weeks and she, and thank, she's spoken to me about this. And this I wanted to ask you, but she cried for weeks and she just, she couldn't accept that she was pregnant and just didn't want, she didn't want another child. So, and she said she literally, and she was honest. And I really respect this because she was honest and open and saying, I didn't want another child. I, I didn't want you until the doctor turned around and said, you know, this is a, I don't know what he said to her, but something stimulated and said, this is a, an absolute gift. This child's going to be such a gift for you. So she turned it around. She said, I didn't, but this, but you, but he said, and that's true. It worked out that way. So there was a sense of peace. I wanted to ask you, did you get that opportunity to ever talk to your mom? about that, about that experience that she had? Did you ever kind of get to a resolution? Because I managed to get to a resolution with my mom and it made a massive difference. If she hadn't said those things and only left me with the, I didn't, you were an unexpected child, it would have left me, I think, feeling you know, all this primal bond wound and all that kind of stuff. Well, I appreciate um, on a very personal level, you, you sharing that um, with me and all of us. And so the running kind of narrative about me, my birth, know, their ideas about the fact that I was coming and then kind of who yeah, I was yeah. in the family um, up until my mom died um, a little over two years ago now was, oh, sorry. I was, I was a miracle. This is kind of how it was. I was a miracle. Okay. I was, you know, kind of thank, thank God you're here. And then as I, you know, was born into the family and excelled in all of these ways, right. It was this kind of 
very, you Big know, kind child. Of gift from God was kind of language that, that would yeah. be used in my, good in Catholic, my, good in Catholic my Catholic gift from God. Family. Yeah. Yes. I grew you know, up in a Catholic and, family too. Yes. So that's how I was, my story, my story of origin, if you will, had been presented to me in a lot of ways. I, I felt that I always thought obviously the emotional component missing, but I didn't have language though. Mm-hmm. I felt very celebrated in a lot of those external achievement ways. Like I talked about um, I got attention again when I was performing, I was the youngest, you know, so I was keeping them busy in all of the ways and yeah. they were taking me all the things. So I found out about the reality of this kind of pre-birth story at my mom's funeral, actually from oh, the wow. aunt who stood up to tell, uh, all of us who were there joined to, to tell this story, you know, joking, ha ha ha. Wow. So funny. And then it's Nicole, you know, great. Um, so I oh, didn't wow. have the Ouch. opportunity yeah. for my mom to. And quite honestly, she was, she spent so much of her life, I think, disconnected from her own experiences and, she and her own she truth. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how, how readily connected she would have been to that version of the reality to sh- then to share it with me. Um, though I imagine, but, you know, kind of just even hearing your journey in terms of the relief and, and the bonding and, you know, what it could it, have provided. There was an eye connection. There was a conversation that was beyond. There was something spiritual mm. that happened in that moment, and it gave me that release. And that's what's missing, I think, in what you what you're trying to explain. I was trying to comp- not that be comparing, right. but it's to understand that. But if I didn't get that, because you can say you're a miracle and you know you're a miracle, but there's there was something missing. That's what I'm hearing you say. There was that spiritual yes. her looking you in the eye and saying, "Hey, you know what? I am." really so happy that you were born, which she meant, but she just didn't tell you somehow and didn't connect on that deep spiritual level. Or, and, because I do think connection comes not only in the positive, yeah, for sharing the honest reality. I was scared yeah. out of my mind, Nicole. That's when, honest, right? yeah. Honest. Um, and authentic, honest. Yeah, authentic. the real truth. Though I would be lying if I said that I didn't get a very kind of deep level of heal- healing, hearing, my aunt's version. That's great. Uh, Cause it was able to more affirm, you know, what I had come to the awareness of that we didn't have that deep emotional bond, um, that we didn't have that deep, then emotional attunement and connection. And it continued to just give me part of the story with why it was that we didn't. And I was able to really compassionately then see my mom as a, as a human. I'm a very overstressed, overwhelmed human quite literally trying to do the best that she can yeah. and trying to break a lot of the patterns from her own. I mean, she had even more of an emotionally cold, disconnected childhood experience. So in a lot of ways, I'm, I, I dedicate the book to my mom. I'm very grateful beautiful. Um, for how she did show up. Um, and I'm very compassionate to all of the ways that she was unable to show up. Um, and I've gained that compassion, not only in these moments of just having more objective information, yeah. though having more moments of compassion for myself in seeing all of these deep ways <clears throat> that, and for all of us listening, that these patterns are wired into us, Yeah, you know, and that awareness came by just being much more consciously present. Um, and as I talk about in the chapter about conditioned selves, mm. you know, it begins with that daily commitment to showing up, not in just that blind autopilot, right? Doing the things that we do every day and the habits mm-hmm. that we naturally care or don't care for yeah. our bodies, but being really that conscious presence in our life. And then obviously translating that focus of presence to our relationships 
and beginning to explore all of the different ways or roles that we're playing. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it's, again, you're the overachiever like me, you might be an underachiever on the other side of that, trying to keep yourself in the background, water yourself down so much, right? Not cause any ripples or any kind of stress in the home. Again, probably based in childhood where that was your survival mechanism. You might be the caretaker, right? Always in care um, of someone else. You might be what I call the yes person, right? Just always agreeing with and deferring to the world around us, whoever or whatever the request might be. Um, There's so many different habitual ways that many of us are continuing to show up because that's that patterned way we learned to show up that we might not even be aware of, Mm. right? Because they're so ingrained in our subconscious. Like I was sharing earlier, some of them just believe that's who we are. It's our personality. It's our identity even. And so in terms of, you know, becoming conscious and then beginning to break that habit, it really does begin with becoming present and not shaming ourselves. Like I'm still on the journey of doing, right? Expanding that awareness of compassion, right? I am continuing to live many of those habits still to this day that have once kept me safe. So I don't have to criticize or judge or shame myself in those moments. I do have to continue to create space in my most primary relationship, the relationship with myself day in and day out. And this conversation begins every morning to this day, especially in these moments where I'm excited. I'm busy. I'm promoting a pod, uh, a promoting yeah. book. I'm on podcast. There's all this achievement driven stuff to do throughout my day. And those wired in habits start the t- second I wake up, I want to pick up my phone and go to my email, right? I want to start to do my to-do list. Mm-hmm. And I have to remind myself that to be in service in a flow state when I'm on podcast, yeah. when I'm teaching, right? When I'm creating whatever it is I might create next. That begins with those choices I'm making in the morning. So am I able to create the time and space to care for my body, to give myself those moments of silent self-reflection so that later on, right, not to just drop right into that conditioned way of being, of overachieving, mm-hmm. of worrying about everyone before me. And for a lot of, you know, those of us with many obligations, maybe even little kids we're in care of, that begins first thing, right? The tendency to not put our own oxygen mask on first. Exactly. Right? We don't schedule enough time in the morning before our children wake up to even take a moment to ground ourselves in our own presence. And so again, these are wired in mm. for so many or for all of us. They're beginning in that in utero environment. They just become how we know ourselves. And we can create incredible change and transformation, not only in our relationship with ourselves, but in our relationship with other people when we become more present, though it does mean wrapping this full circle, it will be uncomfortable. We're going to challenge our body's impulse to do the familiar because it's predictable. It feels more controlled. It feels safer. Many of us are going to become present to a lot of deep rooted pain, wounding as we begin to unlearn some of these habits and patterns, roles, right? Clicking out of that conditioned way of being that self and expressing ourselves more authentically. We might feel a lot of grief. A lot of grief when we look back at needs that went unmet, at things that we didn't get in our childhood that we needed. We might feel a lot of grief for this shedding that we're doing, right? A lot of fear might come up even. Well, who am I now if I'm not the caretaker, the achiever? If I don't hang my identity on what I do, who am I? So again, I I hope and welcome us all not to shame ourselves. Mm. I think a lot of us, as we get older and we start to maybe have these questions percolating or these like Mm. concerns of, Maybe this whole life I've created isn't coming from my deeper, 
you know, self, my purpose, my passion. And then we could feel really destabilized because so much of our world and our identity. So I really do want to offer that grief and grieving aspects of ourself, again, needs that went unmet for very long, grieving ways we've shown up in acts of yeah. self-betrayal, self-neglect, um, you know, self-sabotage is all part of why, like you were saying, these kind of yeah. moments of difficulty um, yeah. and to be compassionate, not to have the expectation that they're not present, to learn how to be present with all that is there. Mm, so good. And then once you've done that, in your morning routine, just to wrap this up, because I want to honor your time. So that to be present to it, so beautifully said, and it's so clearly laid out in the book, what would be the next step? Because once you're aware, you need to do something with what you're aware of. Then, you know, and again, as, as you talk about too, in terms of uh, habit change, the more we walk out of that familiar zone, right? The more many of us very naturally, I think we become aware of a lot of things. So yeah. we're like, oh, I'm going to restructure life. From top to bottom, sorry, tomorrow I'm a new person. <laughs> the more we kind of expand out of that comfort yeah. zone, the more we're going to stress our physiological body. And if we don't have the tools to navigate how stressful change will feel, yeah, how all of those emotions will be when we're actually present to them, we're going to set ourselves up to fail, to go right back into those old habitual ways. So whatever it is that anyone is becoming present to in terms of all of the changes that you may want to make um, outside of building a that habit of becoming conscious in more moments than not, the next priority suggestion I would give is to create what I call in self-healer circle, a commitment to keeping, making and keeping a small daily promise, right? Really breaking that stage, that, that, that plan for change down into, and especially for those of us that have a lot of external obligations and busy lives mm -hmm. and, you know, things that we're required to do in any given day breaking it down into what is the smallest thing I could do and stay committed to doing mm -hmm. even when I don't want to, even when my mind and body are telling me it's uncomfortable, even when I'm criticizing that it doesn't feel like I'm changing fast enough. Why bother that I can stay committed to, like you said, those 60 plus days to begin to create that as a new habit or to make that new choice consistently enough to actually lay down some of that new neural hardware um, to create it into the habit that over time, right, can become who you are, right, a, a new state of identity. Oh, beautiful. And on that note, we just kind of touched the tip of the iceberg. And Nicole, thank you again for your work, for this beautiful, enlightening conversation that I know has freed so many people as it always does. And I always get excited to not say goodbye, but, you know, the, the French word au revoir. Till we meet again, in person, hopefully. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been so good as of usual. Carolyn, thank and you. I, I love our conversations. I'm holding the vision, like I said, of, of joining together in person. Thank you all for being curious, for clicking on uh, this episode, for listening if you're just meeting my work, for continuing uh, to follow along and support because it, it gives me not only the opportunity, of course, to continue to write books and have these yeah. conversations, but it gives me such hope. For all of us, for yeah. the work you do day in and day out, Carolyn, for your community that, you know, is now so big and global and growing, you know, so many of us are interested in these conversations around breaking the yes. cycles. And for me, it's just so, it gives me such a hopeful view um, that I know oftentimes when we look out at, you know, things that are kind of contextually happening in any given moment, it can be hard to have hope. Mm -hmm. um, but this is, this is why that I continue to hold on to that hope. And it's, it's all of you. Oh, well, thank you. And where can people get hold of your books and find you? And The books, uh, I'm hoping, are across most major book retailers. Um, I put up a website, 
howtobethelovyouseek.com that will kind of list several major retailers that I know will have a copy of the book, though I welcome Fantastic. you. I love supporting local. So go check your local books bookstore. Hopefully they will have a copy or two on site. Um, and of course, uh, come follow me across all the different social media platforms. I'm talking about this stuff day in and day out. We have an incredibly beautiful community, um, again, to, to relate to, to maybe better understand yourself and to, for many of us, begin to develop these authentic connections that I know we're desiring so deeply. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much again. And as I said, till we meet again. Till we meet again. <laughs>